Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our big island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and B93B97 at 7 a.m. or listen anytime online at kwxx.com. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Welcome to Island Conversations. Remember, these Island Conversations interviews air on Sundays on KWXX and B93B97 and are then repeated the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. Kilauea volcano began its eruption most recently in 1983, but in May 2018, the eruption took on a whole new and destructive aspect. The East Rift Zone eruption, which followed a similar pattern to previous eruptions in 1955 and earlier, completely altered the Puna district of our island. Around 700 homes were destroyed, and between the lava in Puna and the VOG which blanketed West Hawaii, tourism, the economy, and residents really suffered. Today we're going to get an update on Kilauea from Hawaiian Volcano Observatory scientist in charge, Tina Neal. Tina has worked for the United States Geological Survey since 1983 on various aspects of volcanology, eruption response, and hazard mitigation. Her first experience with our volcanoes was in 1985, and she came back to Hawaiian Volcano Observatory to be scientist in charge in 2015. Good morning, aloha, Tina. Hi, great to be here. Well, I'm really glad that you're here to give us an update, because clearly, even though Kilauea is not actively erupting at this time, it's such a presence on our island, and we really do need to get an update. But first, at the beginning of 2018, you scientists were very concerned more about Mauna Loa than about Kilauea. So before we talk about Kilauea, what's up with Mauna Loa? Are we still concerned that an eruption of Mauna Loa could be sooner than later? Yes. Well, you're exactly right. When I arrived in 2015, right off the bat, I tended to focus a lot of my energy on preparing for a potential eruption at Mauna Loa because it was showing signs of unrest. We were seeing elevated counts of earthquakes and uh, steady rates of deformation indicating accumulation of magma in the shallow reservoirs beneath the summit. This began to calm down, actually, in the summer of 2018, and we downgraded the volcano from it then the alert level was advisory back to normal. So in, in retrospect, Mauna Loa experienced a spurt of unrest from about 2015 into 2017, and then it really began to slow down. So for some time there, uh, we were, of course, much more focused on Kilauea. Just within the last three or four months, I would say we've seen a return to inflation and slightly elevated earthquake counts at Mauna Loa. So the lull or the quieting we saw in early 2018 has ended, and we're now looking at a slight uptick in activity. And the bottom line is that we are still watching Mauna Loa very carefully, and it could well be moving towards a period of increased concern. But we have yet to raise the alert level from its lowest quiet state to the next step up. We would need to see this pattern continue for a little while longer and then maybe um, have some different characteristics. So what I'm hearing you say is we should not be concerned that Mauna Loa is imminently going to erupt, but make sure I understand that correctly. That's correct. Mauna Loa is not imminently going to erupt, but we are watching it closely. And I think one of the very important things we all as a community learned last summer is that uh, from the onset of activity, of, of intrusion of magma into parts of the volcano, from that onset to actual eruption, that time can be very short. And so this is why we have to maintain careful monitoring vigilance and everyone needs to be prepared. 
I asked you this question when I talked with you and Jim Kohikawa and Ingrid Johansson last October, but relationship as you see it between the activity at Kilauea and the activity at Mauna Loa. Well, there is some suggestion geologically looking back that uh, during periods of Kilauea quiet, Mauna Loa is more active and vice versa. So now that we're in a period of pause of activity at Kilauea, uh, one could suppose that this might be a time of enhanced possibility of eruption at Mauna Loa. So that factors into our vigilance. Okay. Let's get to the main event, which is Kilauea Volcano. Last Tuesday, March 26th, you, meaning the scientists at Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, lowered the alert level for Kilauea to the lowest it's been in years. So give us an update on Kilauea Volcano. Since that alert level scheme was put in place, Kilauea Volcano has never been at that lowest rung. So this is unprecedented in the history of that alert level. After about eight months of essentially no eruptive activity at Kilauea and declining earthquake rates, very low, sustained, steady gas levels, we have decided that the volcano is at essentially a background quiet state with no indication that an eruption is likely happening in the next weeks or months. And so therefore, following the definitions of these alert codes, alert levels, uh, we, we bumped it down to the lowest level. But these alert levels are not written in stone, and they don't have a time frame written into them. And so we also must continue to watch Kilauea very carefully. And at any time, it could change this pattern of behavior and suggest to us that an eruption would be more likely. So at that time, we would upgrade to the next level and the next level as needed. You know, when this summer 2018 eruption started, it was a couple of weeks prior to all of the major activity when you started noting changes in Kilauea volcano. So two weeks, is that kind of typical, what one would see before a fairly, not fairly, that was a major eruption? Right. I think that's a good time frame. Potentially longer, of course, is our hope that we would have months of lead time before knowing that eruptive activity were more likely, and that's one reason we're trying to spend a lot of attention right now on making sure we've instrumented, especially the summit of the volcano well, to see signs of an ascent of magma back towards the surface. We know from the very low levels of sulfur dioxide gas emission right now that magma is probably deeper than about a kilometer or 3,300 feet below the surface. Uh, If it would start to shallow, we would expect to see increased SO2 output. We would expect to see the ground start to deform and uplift, perhaps. Um, We also might see an increase in earthquakes. So those are the kinds of things we're watching for. And at that time, if we see those signals progressing, we would potentially upgrade the Volcano One alert level. I want to remind everybody that there is a fabulous website, the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory website. Google Hawaiian Volcano Observatory and you'll get to it. And in fact, the report that the scientists put up is there for everybody to read. And there are some interesting facts there. You said, Tina, you and your scientists, that the past nearly eight months without active lava marks the longest time interval without eruption since the 17-month period between November 1979 and April 1982, and that the longest known eruptive pause was in 1935 to 1952. And that ended with an eruption in the caldera. And I know that in what you put out, you said maybe the next eruption might be from the caldera. Explain what that really means. Yes. So uh, our geologists have done a comprehensive review of all of the historical eruptions for which there are good records, and even those for which there are sketchy records, try to understand what the patterns, if any, are surrounding 
what happens to a volcano after a major eruptive event like what happened in 2018. And it's important to know that there is no absolute repeatable pattern. As I like to say, there's no script for the volcano to follow. And that's why we still have so much to learn. But if you look at all of those instances and try to look for broad patterns, there is the more likely scenarios that it will take a couple of years for magma to accumulate with sufficient pressure to reach the summit. And again, based on what has happened in similar events of the past, it looks most likely that lava would first erupt in the summit caldera and that a rift zone eruption, either southwest or east rift zone, would be sometime later. But that's by no means a certainty. We put this out in, in a sense as a hypothesis to see if the model holds. Okay, well, let's just hope it does. You know, what can I say? Do you have any sense of time frame? You said it could be a couple of years before enough magma accumulates. So that sounds like very good news for us that we really shouldn't be worried about something happening within a month. I would agree with that. Or two months. Still agreeing? I would agree with that. <laughs> okay. We'll kind of hold that good thought. You also mentioned that there's very little SO2. And I have to say, as an island resident, I can see the clear skies, and I love the clear skies. And that's been a particular blessing of the pause of the lava. Absolutely. We're all enjoying it, even in East Hawaii. The beautiful, clean skies really makes uh, the island feel very different, and it's lovely. Sometimes it looks like there is haze in the air, particularly in West Hawaii. Would you have any idea why that is? Well, there's always, of course, marine haze that develops over here, and there can also be, in during high wind events, lots of particulates relofted to, to contribute to some atmospheric haze. At this point, given the very low levels of output from Kilauea, I'd be surprised if that was a major contributor. Okay. Well, that's good to know, because when anybody sees haze in the air, they get a little nervous. And I know that Jim Kwahikawa, one of your geophysicists, has a couple of times asked me, are you seeing haze in the air? Because I know that HVO gets a lot of concerned calls or emails from folks about that very same thing. That's true. Uh, the other factor sometimes there are fires on the island which can contribute to haze. And I should point out, though, that even with these very low levels of output, there are times where we're getting reports of sulfurous odors, particularly hydrogen sulfide, both in the summit area and down near Pu'u'o and even in the lower east drift zone. The human nose is extremely sensitive to hydrogen sulfide, and so that's not surprising. That happened back in the pre-Pu'u'o days as well. I almost hate to ask you about this. However, a woman who lives in the Pahoa area wrote letters to the editor, both West Hawaii Today and the Tribune Herald, and I believe she also wrote the same thing to ask HVO, essentially suggesting that Puna Geothermal Venture had somehow caused this eruption. She suggested that really that the scientists were just sort of keeping information from the public. So the first point is, is there any possible way Puna Geothermal and geothermal drilling would have caused Kilauea volcano to erupt? There is no credible model that I'm aware of that could connect the Puna Geothermal Venture activity with the eruption of 2018. I think it's important to note that there were eruptions of somewhat similar style, although not as big, back in 1960, 1950, 1840, uh, all in that same general area long before the geothermal plant was in operation. Also, looking at what led to the outbreak on May 3rd in 2018, this was really a volcano-wide event. It started with the collapse of Pu'o'o and then a surge of magma through the East Rift Zone core into the Lower East Rift Zone, which is an area 
of high long-term likelihood of eruptions. So it really didn't respond to some activity localized right around Pune Geothermal. The scale of the PGV activity relative to the scale and size and power of the volcano, it's just so much smaller. I have very, a very difficult time linking the two. I had done an interview with Mike Kalei-Kini of Puna Geothermal and Don Thomas from UA Chilo to bring a little academic rigor to the process, just all about geothermal. And one of the things that Don pointed out was you can't build a geothermal plant unless you have a volcano, and that is true worldwide. The other thing is that I believe the certainly the 1955 eruption, well before any of geothermal activity was contemplated, it happened really along a similar pattern as far as I can observe and basically what you guys have all been saying, yeah? Yes, there were a lot of similarities between uh, 1955 and, and 2018. Actually, there were similarities among all of the historical eruptions in Lower East Rift Zone and, and 2018. I'm guessing that being a scientist, you would suggest that there probably are going to be future eruptions in similar areas. Yes, I think one important thing people should understand is that even last summer was a monumental event that had such impact and vastly changed the landscape. The long-term hazard map for Kilauea volcano really hasn't changed. Hazard zone one is still hazard zone one, et cetera. So the rift zone axes are still one of the highest likelihood places on the volcano for future eruptions. What we just can't say with certainty is when. Well, I'd like to point out that map is also available on the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory website. It's a wealth of information, and I really urge people to take a look at it. And just a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, and I'm Sherry Bracken. Thank you so much for joining us here on New West Broadcasting with Island Conversations airing on Sundays on KWXX and B93B97 and on the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. And you may get more information at kwxx.com, which is also where you may download this for anytime listening or subscribe to the podcast. Today we're talking with Tina Neal, scientist in charge at Hawaiian Volcano Observatory about all things Kilauea and Mauna Loa. And we're going to get to some of the key learnings from the summer 2018 lava flow in just a second. Next week, we'll be talking with Hawaii County Police Chief Paul Ferreira. If you'd like to suggest any questions for Chief Ferreira, please email me at sherry at kwxx.com. That's S-H-E-R-R-Y. Let's get back to our conversation with Tina Neal, scientist in charge at Hawaiian Volcano Observatory about what's up with our volcanoes. So Tina Neal, you're scientist at this point, eight months later, you've had a chance to learn things and you still have many, many things to learn. Give us a sense as to what your key learnings have been so far. Sure. Well, all the HVO scientists and our colleagues at other observatories on the mainland and and many academics who are joining with us on this are still pouring through the data and will be for many years. A lot of the results so far, I would say, are still preliminary and and have to stand the test of time, both through the publication and peer review process, uh, but just further thinking. One of the ones you've heard us mention before that that was probably the earliest new learning or realization from this eruption was that the explosions early in the event up at the summit of Kilauea, we had the model that these would be caused by the interaction of groundwater with hot rock. In fact, in retrospect, it looks more like it was magmatic gas fueling some of those early explosions. And so this calls into question that whole model of the hydrothermal system and how it responds to a recession of the lava column into the volcano. 
there may be more of a role of magmatic gas in future explosions at the summit than we had early surmised. I think the other really important learning from last summer was based on the observation that following these summit collapses, in very short order, there were surges of lava output down at the Fisher 8 vent, 40 kilometers, 25 miles away. And that sort of pressure connectivity between the summit and the vent that far away are not completely surprising, but had never been really measured before at that distance. And so this is telling us something fundamental about the connectivity and the openness of that connection. And obviously, we're still working out the details. The uh, scientists who studied the chemistry of the lava erupting in detail, of course, they early on discovered that the first material out had been sitting around in the rift zone stored for many decades. And then there was this fascinating andesite lava that came out of uh, one of the eruptive vents. And understanding how long that material must have been there to chemically evolve to become an andesite is going to put some boundaries on some of the conditions in the volcano for us. So how old was that oldest lava, do you think? Well, I think the jury is still out, but there is uh, good evidence that it was at least as old as 1955, some of it. Likely there are multiple ages of lava that were, of magma that were tapped. So I think that's going to be one of the exciting things is teasing out all those different ages. I had heard, I think, that some of the lava seemed to be as old as 1800s or even earlier, 1740. Is that right? It could well be. I'm not keeping up with all of the latest <laughs> output of results, but I think those questions are all still out there. Another really fascinating piece of uh, work going on with our petrologists who are studying rock chemistry, these are some of our University of Hawaii Manoa colleagues, uh, there seem to be populations of olivine crystals in some of the lava that represent great depth in the volcano. And so one of the questions is, where did those olivines really come from? And what does that tell you about the transport history of the magma? Um, how much of what came out at Fisher 8 came through the shallow rift zone core, and how much of it may have come from a deeper part of the rift zone. Uh, these are really important questions to answer because they give us a better sense of the three-dimensional structure of the volcano. I think I heard Matt Patrick in a recent interview suggest that just like 1955 lava came out down in the lower east rift zone, the lava that has been or was coming out of the caldera is continuing to flow down and is now sort of populating those channels. Do I understand that correctly so that the 2018 lava is still probably going to be there under the ground? Absolutely. And if you think about it, it makes sense. When the eruption ended, the uh, lava pond that was inside Fisher 8 sort of slowly receded and went below ground. So you can imagine in your mind's eye that probably no more than a few hundred meters below the surface, there was still molten and probably still is molten material. And slowly that will cool and solidify. But if you go deep enough, it won't solidify for many, many decades. And so in the next Lower East Rift Zone event, some of that material might get goosed out in the first part of the next eruption. The other thing Matt may have been referring to is that Soon after the end of 2018's eruptive period, we saw, based on GPS and tilt meter data, the evidence that the Middle East Drift Zone from about Pu'o'o to Highway 130 was, again, refilling. In other words, there's accumulation of molten material deeper in the rift zone there. So uh, we know that the volcano is still receiving melt in that part, and it's a very slow rate of accumulation. There's nothing alarming to us about this. And in fact, uh, we had been seeing evidence of that in the years leading up to the 2018 eruption. So I think that's just a background state of the volcano. 
now that we have so much more instrumentation on Kilauea than we did 30, 40, 50 years ago, we are seeing the dynamism of the volcano all the time. And that brings us to, do you have adequate instrumentation still monitoring the volcano? Did enough of it survive or did you replace it appropriately? I've never met a geophysicist who doesn't want more instrumentation, <laughs> but the answer is we have a good network on this volcano. It is well monitored. We did lose some equipment during the eruption, absolutely, and we're working to replace it, or in some cases where we deployed temporary equipment on very helpful community members' property in the Lower East Rift Zone, we're deciding whether to make it permanent station or not. So we are still working to bolster the monitoring network. There are gaps that we would like to fill. The area that's densely forested in the middle and lower east drift zone is difficult to monitor because we don't have good line of sight for radio telemetry, and so that's a challenge we need to work on. There is more we would like to put out there. We still are replacing some of what was lost in 2018, and that's a work in progress. Are you getting adequate funding to do that replacement? We were very fortunate in 2018 to receive a good amount of support from the rest of the USGS and then, of course, FEMA, who helped pay for some of the bills during the response. And so we currently have resources to move forward in that direction. And the budget that was just passed for this fiscal year contained some funds in there for us to replace some lost equipment, as well as help us through this facility transition, which is a big expense now as we try to get set up in some new temporary quarters. The other element that you should know about is that there was um, this disaster supplemental bill that was passed by the House and is now being discussed in the Senate. And in that bill, there are some funds set aside uh, to help us with expanding, growing, and improving and modernizing our instrumentation network, not just for Kilauea, but also Mauna Loa and other volcanoes as needed. Oh, that's good. Now, I do have another question about what you just brought up, the move. But before we go there, I wanted to ask you about earthquakes. Fairly recently, there was a 5.5 or thereabouts earthquake that was on the south flank. And of course, that woke a lot of people on the island up and it was like, oh no, is it happening again? So talk about that. An aftershock of the 6.9 that happened in early May, a new earthquake, what should we expect in the future? And how scared should we be? I don't think we should be scared. This kind of earthquake is fairly typical for Kilauea's south flank region. The earthquake occurred on what we call the Décolement, which is a fault plain at the base of the volcanic pile where it sits on the old ocean floor. It's a plain of weakness, and uh, it's a common place for basically the volcanic pile to move and spread. Our seismologists do consider the 5.5 an aftershock of last May's 6.9, it occurred on sort of the western margin of the region of rupture from that 6.9. So it's part of a family of earthquakes that will continue to happen along the south flank. And as an aftershock, it's a particularly large one, obviously, but aftershocks for 6.9 can continue for as much as a year or two. That's good to know. Now, you talked about your physical location. Clearly, everybody must know that your Hawaiian Volcano Observatory location, located in the perfect place on the rim of the caldera, is not able to be occupied at this time. And you are in a number of different temporary quarters in the Hilo area. Some folks are in trailers. It doesn't sound like an ideal situation. So what's the odds of going back into Hawaii Volcanoes National Park? Otherwise, what's your plan? Yes. So just to review where we are at present, many of us are in the U.S. Customs Building down at the port of Hilo. Another group of folks, the geologists, are on campus, uh, graciously hosted by the University of Hawaii. 
And then we have some folks who've just moved to a warehouse out in Kea'au. So we continue to be a little bit spread out, but we've just signed a lease for the Ironworks building second floor, where we hope to move in a month or so and have almost all of the staff co-located in one place, which will be terrific because having us all together is really efficient from an operational sense. You're correct that HVO was badly damaged in 2018. In fact, we evacuated the building in the middle of May to move to Hilo and the UH campus. It's likely we will not be going back to that main building. We are still in the process, and by we, I mean USGS, in talking with our stakeholders and talking with the National Park Service and, of course, talking with our congressional delegation about what would be the best long-term solution for us. And there are lots of ideas out there on the landscape for that. We want to maintain our critical monitoring capacity and our ability to do good science here on the island. And also, very importantly, we need to be close to the at-risk public and our emergency management partners. So all of those things are being factored into the ongoing discussion. Tina, interestingly, as we talk about physical space, just on Friday, Senator Maisie Hirono's office released a video of her talking with the nominee for the Secretary of the Interior, David Bernhardt, and apparently there's been some discussion within Interior that Hawaiian Volcano Observatory should be located on Oahu. Senator Hirono made the point that she was not in favor of that, noted that we do not have volcanic eruptions on the island of Oahu, and that Interior should make no such decisions without consulting with the congressional delegation. Is somebody actually thinking of moving Hawaiian Volcano Observatory scientists to Oahu? So the U.S. Geological Survey is still in the process of working with the congressional delegation and all of our stakeholders to determine the best solution for HVO going forward. And we will focus on what is the best facility arrangement to allow us to continue our critical monitoring, our important science, and our relationships with emergency managers and the at-risk public. So those discussions are definitely ongoing. There are federal facilities on Oahu that offer some potential advantages for some parts of our operation. But importantly, our planning efforts and discussions are looking at multiple options, very much so here on the Big Island, again, to maintain our ability to monitor the volcanoes adequately and maintain our long relationships with these critical constituents. Obviously, Hawaiian Volcano Observatory is unlikely to be able to return to be inside Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, but do they want you there? We have been told by Cindy Orlando, the superintendent of Hawaii Volcanoes, that they very much would like a presence of HVO in the National Park, and and they were clear about that soon after they uh, reopened last September. Practically speaking, though, sometimes we have, well, we always have earthquakes without any prior notice, and you guys are called into service. A volcanic eruption would definitely require Hawaiian Volcano Observatory staff to be close, and it seems impractical to be an hour away by airplane and then having to land someplace and drive. So really, Oahu? Is that actually an idea that somebody thinks is a good one? It's part of the mix of discussion. We'll continue to to look at all options and really best address our mission needs, needs of our constituents, and also the safety of our employees and our materials. Oahu has been suggested as something to consider for part of our function, and I think that will remain in the mix of discussion. But really, no decisions have been made. I appreciate your diplomacy. I really do. (laughs) Tina Neal, scientist in charge at Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. What would you like to say in closing? I think we've covered a good amount of ground. One of the things I'd like to underscore again is that the Puna event of 2018 showed you how rapidly things can develop from the very early 
warning signs that magma is moving underground to actual eruption at the surface. And this is something that HVO and our civil defense partners take into account in planning for future events either at Kilauea or Mauna Loa. But Hawaii residents should also take note and those who live in vulnerable areas should understand the hazard and the risk they face, have a plan, know how to find information, and be prepared. Tina Neal, scientist in charge, Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, thank you so much for being here today and for the update. And I'd like to also say thank you to you and all of your scientists for your ongoing work and for keeping the website so updated. It's really very much appreciated because we live on an island that has active volcanoes. Thank you. Aloha. Thank you. And before we say aloha, a little bit of additional information. As you heard in my discussion with Tina Neal, scientist in charge at Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, United States Senator Maisie Hirono's office just on Friday released a video showing her challenging the proposed Secretary of the Interior about what appears to be a plan to consider moving Hawaiian Volcano Observatory to Oahu. My interview with Tina Neal was recorded Friday evening, so we had a chance to talk about it. If you would like to see the video we're talking about, it's only 40 seconds long, go to BigIslandVideoNews.com. And then Tina shared with me that she is this week going to be on her way to Washington, D.C. to talk to the higher-ups about the future of Hawaiian Volcano Observatory and its future location or locations. And a big thank you to Senator Maisie Hirono for releasing that video to make sure that we, her constituents, know what's going on relative to a function that is so critical to us here on the Big Island of Hawaii. I'm Sherry Brack, and this is Island Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. You may listen anytime at kwxx.com. That's also where you may download the podcast or subscribe to it. Until next week, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoi ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us again next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, brought to you by New West Broadcasting.